it's out of compassion for ourselves in a way that we mm-hmm. we think, okay, what would it be not to just have this habitual relationship to anger, like it's the only source of strength? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you know, yeah. can I actually explore the domains of love and compassion as a source of strength, and then mm-hmm. and then we're inspired to do that to to make mm-hmm. that exploration. Hey everyone, I'm Raghu, and I am back with Sharon Salzberg and Robert Thurman, two of my favorite people in the entire universe, and uh, this is special. I got to tell you both, uh, welcome, first of all, welcome. Well, thank you. So nice to be here. So happy thank to you so much. Here. So uh, this is a, an interesting moment. Actually, this is kind of weird, but yesterday, I don't know how it happened, but I did a podcast with Roshi Joan, Halifax. Oh. And, and and of course, we could not, and, and we will not be able to not mention Maui and what has gone on there that happened in, 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 a, oh, in yes. such proximity to to us and, and uh, our lengthy times there with Ramdas and, and so on. Yes. So. Yeah, so we did talk about that, and uh, uh, yeah, the extremity of what has gone on there uh, is is just extraordinary, and uh, you know, it brings to mind how dear Maui was to Ramdas, right? I mean, not just the land and the healing quality of the land, but the people, and how right. he was so close to the people. Uh, yes. So yeah, just a, a shout Lahaina out. near where he was. Yeah, near well where you were too when you came. Uh, it was uh, oh, I see. I didn't, maybe I didn't... ten, twelve minute car ride further west, I believe, from Lahaina. Yeah. Oh, you you mean know, the um, the resort where the teaching yeah. happened or where he lived? No, where where the teaching happened With the, the Nepali. Oh right, where, right. Where you, yeah. He lived on the northern side, right? Of that. Uh, West Maui, actually, West, is okay. where it all is. Uh, but uh, that facility did not experience a fire. It was, uh, but at the same time, of course, they're doing what they can to host people and and so on. Um, they're working on it now. Terrible. Yeah. So yeah. And so it's well, I mean, the social media outlets are full of dire, dire predictions about you know. How many bodies are going to be discovered? And you know, I, mean, yeah. I don't think we've really gotten to the depth of this yet. No, definitely not. No, no, it's going to take it's a while. A thousand more people to be found. Yeah, exactly. It's and, and really terrible. Yeah, so, so we're we send out prayers and thoughts to everyone there. We have, of course, people who, uh, well, Ramdas's house is there now on the other side of the island, so of course not affected, but. Everyone and we have people there that that work with Love Server Member Foundation that are on the island, and everyone there, even if they were like an hour, an hour and a half away, are experiencing the trauma. I mean, for sure. I mean, I have it going on as well because it's just indelible uh, memories of being there and being in Lahaina, and you know, it's just uh, it's an extraordinary Very thing, um, and. So we, yeah, uh, Roshi and I talked about uh, the wonderful times we spent with Ramdas in, in those did. days. You know, now it's almost four years since he left, and uh, talk about uh, boy, written in our minds some of the <laughs> most wonderful uh, experiences uh, with him back in that day. I think you both remember. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um, so, well, Sharon and I were talking, and I didn't know that you were guys were going to republish this book, Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier, right? Um, what led you to do that, you guys, to republish it? And, you know, and there's a couple of new um, prefaces and so, and so on. Well, it was really the invitation of the publisher 
because uh-huh. it's the 10th anniversary. They said, why don't we reissue it and you each can write a new preface. And so it was born in their minds. And uh, it's nice to note an anniversary because in some ways, think about these last 10 years and the concept of enemies <laughs> and how much enmity there really is, uh-huh. even more than yeah. there was then. Polarization is extraordinary. Yes, that's yes. yes. very good to remind me because uh, Mr. Putin and the Russians are my enemy nowadays. And um, so I have to love them, you know, in spite of the absolute atrocities they are wreaking on the people of Ukraine and their own people, we have to realize, on the Russian people. Yeah, and uh, repercussions worldwide. Own people. Hmm? And repercussions worldwide. Worldwide, worldwide. I, I, I can never forget yeah, Yuval Harari. He gave a little talk right on February 25th at the very beginning of the invasion about how seeds of bitterness for generations will be planted. And now he really, mm. he was very beautifully and prophetically spoke. I, I was really moved. Really? And of course, he's been absolutely correct. Yeah. And so at that time, we have to love them anyway. And in a way, Buddhist thing would be that uh, the evildoers in a situation like that are having the worst situation because of the karma that they are wreaking upon themselves, that it will catch up with them, you know, whatever. That not necessarily by the Ukrainians, but in future lives, you know. And that vision of life, that life is a multi-life continuity of people, they're really mm. making a bad situation for themselves. So yeah. they really do deserve compassion and love, actually. Yeah. Only you know, they could be persuaded to stop, you know. Yeah. So uh, interesting. Here's an interesting um, little quote from we're we're doing a course, an online course from mm-hmm. Ramdas Love Server member Alan Watts and Ramdas around uh, the basically the Dharma of Alan Watts and Ramdas with you know themes for each week and so on and so forth. So uh-huh. I, I've been going through the material and. Everyone's like, yeah, Alan Watts. We know Alan Watts, and but I found out I I didn't know Alan Watts that well. You know, I was a much younger when you know his books appeared and, and all of that. But as I'm going through the material, and this is this kind of apropos for for the for the re-release of the republication of the book, um, he said, the real reason for loving one's enemies is that you need them. Uh-huh. Yeah. You want to dissect that statement? I mean, I think there's some there's some truth in terms of it provoking the kinds of things you're talking about in this book around anger and and so on and so hatred and so on uh, mm-hmm. that allows us to actually even think of doing the work to uh, transform ourselves. What do you think? Well, I wonder if even before that, not to take over your role. No, Rugged. go ahead. You can take uh, it. Because the the uh, structure of the book is based on this Tibetan Buddhist model of four kinds of enemies. I wonder if Bob, as the scholar, uh, could actually just, you know, briefly talk about each of the four so that mm-hmm. when you say enemies or I say enemies, right. uh, it has kind of a larger perspective. Okay. Good idea. Well, I, I hope I can remember all four. Uraga has the book in front of him. <laughs> well, I remember the outer enemy. That's the obvious one at the moment. It's the insurrectionists in America and the wannabe fascists that are running around with their AR-15s and their and their bloviating like, like mass rallies and so on. And this outer enemy, and of course the the various fascist dictators around the planet. Uh, the inner enemy is uh, one's own hatred and anger that rises up uh, about that. And then the secret enemy is how different from the inner enemy. I'm really not remembering quite how we defined it at that time. I confess I didn't reread the whole book for this new issue. Oh, sure. uh, but the secret enemy could be the idea that there's nothing we can do about ourselves. And we just sort of think we just have to react and we have to, if we have an impulse to be angry, we just have to follow it. And our body and mind become the tool of the emotion. And because we believe what we, our inner monologue, when it tells us, I hate that, I have to get that person, I have to do that, that could be the 
secret one, our sense that we can't control it. And then the fourth one, I'm stumped. Sharon, can you remember? Yes, well, I think uh, you, you had defined it as a kind of self-hatred. I mean, sometimes... Oh, yeah, self-loathing. Self-loathing. Yeah. yeah. Finally, the Tibetans don't make a thing about that. Remember, you noticed that. Yeah. That because I think the Tibetan family system, like many indigenous people's system, they they yeah. grew up with a decent mom situation. You know, they, they're not all shattered and squeezed by industrialization, like the nuclear family in the way in a modern so-called country. And uh, therefore, they don't really, it's, a, it's more rare that they load themselves in a way. Yeah. They do. Although, although they do have, there is one thing which I'm trying to remember in Buddhism, it's called the four currents, mental currents, and one of them is the longing for death. It's sort of a wish to be negated. It's sort of the root of this kind of people who seek things like heroin and numbing, numbing themselves, and then even don't mind finally numbing themselves if they have a view that they could become nothing. So there is a kind of self-obliteration death wish that human beings can develop, surprisingly to us who mainly think about the survival instinct. It's a kind of instinct to obliterate yourself when you're in fear or in pain and things like that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's that's connecting to the self-loathing thing. Okay, so the fourth super secret enemy then is the self-destructive uh, energy, let's say. So I hope so. I hope so. I apologize. I'll have to revisit the revisit <laughs> podcast and <laughs> exactly. But yeah. on the other hand, you know, one thing we have to remember is Buddhist teaching is never dogmatic. And it's not like then, oh, okay, you know the four, so you're fine. It's how you define it yourself from your own experience. So Buddhist teaching is all plain coaching. You know, it's not like giving answers exactly. Mm -hmm. It's just giving directions that then people find out with their own experience. So that's yeah. our excuse for forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, a, a Sharon in in your preface. Uh, I think this is very useful. I'll. I'll I'm going to remind you a little bit what you said, okay. uh, but it's around, it's really defining love. We're saying love our enemies, right? And you define it. And uh, if love to us means giving in, it makes no sense. If it means spiritual bypassing, denial of pain, or a forced forgiveness, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. If we see it as being complicit or subservient, then I think it's not a great idea. But right. love or loving kindness can mean something more empowering. This exploration invites us to consider what a deeper sense of loving kindness is and why it might be helpful. So I think that that, you know, that has to be part and parcel with everything we speak to here. Um, and I, I would speak to it in a little bit of different, just add a little, the word unconditionality there's an unconditionality. There's not a purpose for for loving. There's not a motive, and I that that's got to be part of this because otherwise it's really difficult. You just mentioned, you know, a large part of the population here, or a good part. I don't, you know, large may be too big a word. Um, you know, who who support this kind of idea of separation and individualism, and uh, and you know. It's becoming very, very difficult and sometimes violent in this country. To So for me to just say, well, we're going to love these people, we're going to love their leader, is uh, far-fetched unless you really define what we mean about that. So Sharon, maybe you can talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think that's one way for sure of doing it, of coming to a place where it makes any sense at all uh, to think about love. Of course... Uh, even prior to what I'm about to say, and even prior, I think, to what you were saying, is the examination of what love means to us. Because for some people, it really is a medium of exchange. And if you're not getting back, you're not giving, or you're not loving yourself if you're not perfect. Or, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many meanings that are possible. But um, I don't actually come to that place so much by thinking unconditional, though I know what you mean. It's. Um, you know, it needs it to be maybe overreaching, right? A little bit. Yeah, you know, but for me, um, and this, you know, especially has to do with the first kind of enemy, like an actual being that we feel enmity towards or we're afraid of, yeah. uh, who's hurt us or 
we've witnessed hurting others. Um, and there's real damage there, you know? Like, you never want to get to a place of saying doesn't matter, because it does matter. Actions are consequential. But I think you could have a different kind of motive. It's not the motive I think you were referring to, really. I mean, you could have a motive of what I don't call greed, I call science. And I remember uh. when this book first came out, Bob and I were doing a talk, and someone said something to Bob like, um, I have a really bad boss. They're very difficult. They're really obnoxious. Um, why in the world would I want to be practicing this toward them? And and Bob would say, well, if you want them to be happy, which is part of that energy of love, if they were happy, they'd be less of a jerk. You know, that's a motive, but it's actually real. And yeah. people would come to me all the time and say, I, I have bad motives. I can't practice. I'm so impure. I want, you know, I want more harmony in my life. I want, and I say, no, that's science. That's like how things work, yeah. you know? And so sometimes we just tune right. into how things work and that gives us a motive or an impetus to practice. If it becomes like a cudgel, we're beating ourselves up, like I'm not forgiving enough. That's a different story. Yeah. Um, the right. other thing, um, this book I, I, I thought in the beginning was going to be remarkable for how many different titles it went through. Oh. <laughs> before it was actually published. And my favorite was the title just before this one, where um, Bob had, I think, seen a movie, and there was a church in the movie, and right in front of the church. Yeah, like as many churches, you know, there's like a little bulletin board with a pithy saying, and mm. what it said in the, in the board was, uh, love your enemies, it will drive them crazy. <laughs> and I love that, you know, because it took it away from the kind of pious, I'm holier than thou, and we're going to love everyone not knowing what it means. Right. Was it, I begged the editors to put that subtitle back on the thing, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't do it. Uh, but I begged them to do it because it's so humorous. We, you know, I I freaked out. I was I was chickened out. I thought it might annoy the Christians, you know, who love them. Because it would drive them crazy. But that's the idea, you know, what, what uh, the thing that Ram Dass and Watts said, that going back to that, what you brought up. Uh, just Watts, Ram Dass Raku, didn't say that, just Raku, to get clear. It's really very deep, of course, because, and it reminded me, there's an incident in the Vimalakirti Sutra where uh, one um, Mahakashapa, who is the head monk uh, in the Buddha's community, who happens to be in the dialogue between Vimalakirti and Majushri, and he heard this teaching of what's called the inconceivable liberation of the Bodhisattva. And then he said, oh, it's so great. You Bodhisattvas are so lucky. You know, if, if, if only we were able, we, we our hats, we, he was a saint and enlightened person of a certain type. And he said, if only we were able to really get into it, it would be great. I mean, you, should, you guys should be really happy. So the people said, and, and then you shouldn't even be afraid of the devil, he said. Or like as if he was, so that he contrasting himself to the devil, you know. So then Vimal says, "Oh, don't worry, Mahakasapa. It's just as great for you. We're all going to the same place. We're all the same. And by the way, the devil is actually a bodhisattva in the inconceivable liberation, yeah. because it takes a bodhisattva to harass another bodhisattva to get that bodhisattva to show their patience and develop their armor uh, of patience uh, and all uh, that, and." Um, just that then he has this one of the things. It's just as a donkey could never attack an elephant. Therefore, a non-bodhisattva could never do harsh things to a bodhisattva, like demand to have their eyeballs or demand their life or their head. or And so give the bodhisattva a chance to give their body like a Christ-like sort of thing. And um, so don't worry, Mahakashipa. You know, goodness is everywhere in the universe. And, uh, and that reminded me of, uh, and then it also reminded me of Taratuk, who once was at breakfast with me. We were talking about a section in Shantideva that talks about the value of the enemy to help you develop patience. And uh -huh. he said, yeah, if right now he'd seen on TV Ed McMahon showing up with a million dollar prize, you know, for the lotteries, you know, that yeah, you yeah. get, you know, the yeah. publisher's clearinghouse. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, well, everybody would be happy if right now came to the front door, this is Amherst. Somebody saying you got a million dollars. And we were poor professor, family, four children, always in our credit card debt. And it says, but you'd be, if you knew and understood Shantideva, you would not be that happy to see that. 
you'd be much happier to see your worst enemy at the door because he really oh. helped you become a bigger yeah. being by being yeah. more patient. Right. And I suddenly realized how far I was from realizing <laughs> the meaning of Shantideva's teaching. Yeah. Because well, believe me, I needed Ed McMahon and the man that thing. <laughs> I really did. I didn't need so many enemies showing up there. But he was trying to get it. so funny. He's right, yeah. though. Yeah, hand, that's so great. So, I was. I heard that. I heard that kind of. I heard, very uh, Watson Ramdas were very deep on that point, for sure. Yeah. I heard, you know, the Dalai Lama had posed that question, and I was then in uh, Los Angeles. There's nothing to do with Los Angeles, but that's where I was. Um, and I asked this group of people, which would you rather have, a million-dollar check or your worst enemy pointing oh, you, out your you did. your flaws? And <laughs> and to a person, they said, yeah. the million-dollar check. <laughs> and they were very funny. They said, I already know my flaws. <laughs> or if I had a million dollars, I'd have time to work on my flaws. <laughs> yeah, right. Which I thought was very cute. But oh, sort of <laughs> buried in there, you know, is... Um, in Theravada Buddhism, in the Southern School of Buddhism, they say the Buddha's first teaching of the practice, the meditation practice of loving kindness, was using it as an antidote to fear. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole legend around that where the, you know, the Buddha set off, sent off this group of monks to meditate in a forest, and the forest happened to be haunted by tree spirits who were not happy with the presence of the monks and so they made ghoulish sounds and horrible apparitions and drove them away in fear. And this group of people went running back to the Buddha and said, please send us to a different forest. And he said, I'm going to send you to the same forest, but I'm going to give you the only protection you're going to need, which was the first teaching of loving kindness. And, and right. he said, don't just recite it in a kind of you know hollow way. Practice it. So he went back, they went back and practiced it. And as these stories all end so happily, the monks were so charmed by the beautiful energy coming their way. And they decided to feed the monks. And the tree spirits so were so happy about the energy coming their way from the monks. They yeah. decided to feed the monks and take care of them and pamper them. So it all worked out well. So sometimes when people ask me in a very different note whether or not you believe in tree spirits, you know, you take that point about fear and the antidote to fear. Yes. You know, people ask me all the time, and it's a really important question, some variation on why should I have or practice loving kindness or compassion for people who hate me, people who hate people like me. They don't then think I should exist. Mm -hmm. Why should I do that? And, um, and I think to myself, that makes a lot of sense. It, of course, means that exploration, what do I mean by love? And is it about freeing myself and not mm -hmm. being so burdened or so obsessed and so determined by the actions of another? And, uh, or does it mean giving in? Things like that. And, yeah. and I ask myself, is this a situation where I or we would benefit from my being less afraid? Mm -hmm. And uh, the answer is always yes. Mm -hmm. And so that implies oh, maybe the presence of some more love here mm -hmm. uh, would be of benefit. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I want to go back to uh, Bob the, in terms of, uh, I found something that really connects back with what you were talking about a little bit ago uh, from uh, from the the book the and the new uh, prelude that you did, Preface. I have stopped, this is you, I have stopped focusing on myself and have focused on another, even an enemy, imagining them as happy, which also means at least mentally free from their fear and hatred of me. Once I have chosen happiness over fear and hatred, my intuition, my intuition finds happiness in a lot of other things. The courage to be open to them combines with love overcoming hate. I mean, that, that kind of says a lot right in there and yeah. I, you know what i think bob and sharon what? i i think that i look at myself and reacting to some of the 
horror that we see every day, you know, yeah. especially around in the polarization in this country and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and I and I look at deep down at my motivations for it's enjoying the anger, the you know, if I could loving one's enemies, if I could just stop throwing epithets, epithets at the TV, <laughs> okay, if I could just start there, I'd be in good shape. But I see how the in the human condition how easy it is to kind of wallow and enjoy in the hitting back in the anger at another in the separation and so on how do we uh how do well, we that's cr- the thing. you know that's why i don't like translating i used to do it and most everybody is stuck on that nowadays they translate plesha which is the term or kilesa in pali is determined Buddhism for a mental uh, state like hatred, uh, lust, and so forth that um, that harms you, and they translate it. So I used to translate it as affliction, but actually it would not be hard to get rid of an affliction because it's already a pain. But actually, what pleasures are are the cause of the affliction, and I think the best translation is that addiction. Mm. So mm. addictions are dangerous because they seem to give a superficial pleasure. Yeah, it's to give yeah. a super like hatred, particularly seems to give someone who feels frightened and in a weak position, seems to give them the illusion of being stronger in the position by being enraged and you know, oh, the anger gives the adrenaline rush, you know, and then they get like they get furious and it makes them feel strong. But yeah. then actually they act completely idiotically usually and self-destructively ultimately, and also it wears them out in a second and ruins their health. So it's actually like an addiction. It, it, it pretends yeah. to make you better, but actually ruins you. And um, so Buddha was very good about that, that, that these negative emotions based on our misunderstanding of our true nature and our relationship with others, the misunderstanding of our oneness with others at some level, making us feel they really have to, we have to get them away from our universe and destroy them, which is the angry reaction, the vengeance reaction. And um, um, he completely understood that's totally self-destructive. You, 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 when you do that, you're destroying yourself, not the enemy. You know, the enemy will always come back. And, but you already even, you, because you've internalized your enemy, actually, when you act hatefully even towards someone who's att- attacking you. But on the other hand, one other important thing I think that Sharon rightly touched on, I think people feel that love means you're supposed to smile when the guy's about to run over you with a tank. <laughs> but that uh, isn't it. You can love the guy in the tank and jump out of the way. Yeah. Wish he didn't drive the tank and right. even wish someone else would take the tank away from him or whatever, even if you can't. And so love, there is such a thing as tough love, we call it, or fierce compassion which means that you, anger, I mean, uh, love gives you more power, actually, and more and more judicious use of the power, loving kindness does, than, uh, than uh, hatred does. Hat- hatred seems to give you more power, but actually it makes you, like, run bullheadedly against the tank and break your head on it. And, and, and that's not what it's meant, what is meant, but that is our wrong idea we have in the West, and uh, I personally blame the Roman Empire for that idea. <laughs> personally, I do. I say I blame them for it because the early Christians who had the love idea very nicely from a nice rabbi who were Jewish, many of them, some of them Greek, uh, they uh, were for they they wanted they they did not worship I will crucified Christ. They worshipped a forceful Christ who kicked money changers out of the temple, who healed on the Sabbath, who did unconventional things in a loving way. And uh, then the Romans, when they made it their orthodoxy from Constantine in the 4th century, they dug up a crucifix and they stuck that in everybody's face. And that's showed, what that makes it looks like is that the loving guy got wasted. There's a, there's a Tibetan joke about a kid who was really naughty, who was a, a Buddhist kid, you know, and his mom couldn't deal with him. And then a friend said, oh, take him to the nun's school. They'll straighten him out. And they're really good teachers. And then you, you can't, he's hopeless, obviously. The guy was really, really wicked and naughty. So she took him over there. 
and then left him there. The mother superior said, fine, we'll take care of him. And then she comes back a few days later worrying about what happened to the kid. He says, I, did he tear down the nunnery or the school? <laughs> is he fine? She said, no, no, he's fine. He's standing in the next room. He completely calmed down. She said, really? And she went in and I asked her. She saw him there and he was reading his ABC. So she said, well, what happened to you? What did they do to you? And he said, well, they didn't do anything to me. He said, it's just what they did to the other guy over there. <laughs> and that made me behave. You know? So I'm saying... It was the Romans rubbed into people the the idea. They didn't push the resurrected Jesus, the power of the loving guy who couldn't be killed. They showed him in his worst agony all the time. And I, that made a subliminal message to the West that the good guys are weak. And if you love, you're going to be trampled. Yeah. And if you're compassionate. Yeah. And it was really an unfortunate thing, which I blame them for. In addition to her <laughs> modern annoyances. <laughs> and, Although I do uh, love Francis. I adore the guy. I really mm, do. He, um, he, talked, he talked lovingly about the climate criminals who are wrecking the, you know, who, who are responsible and should pay for Lahaina. Mm -hmm. And they're pumping more of it. And they're yeah. doing it exponentially, not they just know. a little bit. We have to love them out of that, you know, somehow. I remember, uh, Sharon, uh, you saying it, talking, it was actually when Ramdas first started talking about loving awareness. And you start you in a in a talk uh, were confronting the idea that you said people think love is weak. Right, That's exactly what Good. you said back then, and it reminded me, you know, when uh, we, we were with Neem Karoli Baba, who said love is more powerful than electricity. <laughs> and I was reminded actually, of that. Well, but actually, Buddha said. Love is more powerful than a nuclear explosion. Hmm. Actually, they do say that it's on a little more esoteric secret side. They oh, say yeah. that the power of the universe. You know, nirvana is the reality of the universe, according to Buddha, even Four Noble Truths. Right. The other three, suffering cause and the path out of it, are in the relative illusory world, which doesn't mean they don't exist. They're just, but they're less real than nirvana. That was hmm. his good news. And yeah. so that means. The universe loves us, actually, whether alive or dead or in the between. And therefore, love is, and that relates to your unconditionality, Raghu. Uh, love is aligning ourselves with the actual reality of the universe. Yeah. All this illusory separateness and, oh, I got to get him out of my way before I can be happy and blah, blah, all that sort of stuff. That is illusory and is less real than, oh, wow, our solution is loving each other. Mm, yeah. Um you know, there's something that I hit upon in the in the book. I was going through it um, around patience because so you know I pick up on things that I find I have gone through the most difficult times with patience is one of them, and yeah, uh, yeah Sharon, talk about insightful patience. Yeah, I had never heard that term before. I don't know which one of you was talking about it, but uh, but if you could speak to it, uh, just patience and what that means relative mm -hmm. to the central premise here of of loving those who uh, maybe we feel are unlovable. Well, looking back at you know different writings I've done or ways I teach, I realize that one of the things I seem to enjoy a lot is redeeming words. Yeah, you know, like yeah. I wrote a book called Faith, and people, you know, friends were saying, to me, not the name Curly Baba's decisions, but other friends were saying to me, "Why are you writing a book on that?" You know, like, yeah, um, uh, which was interesting, or even loving kindness or love, or and uh, you can do that with so many words because over time and uh, the ways we've used them, the ways we hear them, uh -huh. um, silence has come to mean being silenced. For many people, that's their real experience, or yeah, uh, and so is faith. It's <laughs> come to mean being silenced for many people. So, patience is interesting because it can seem a little dreary as a term. We think about be patient; it means don't have needs, don't be yourself, don't try to make anything happen. You're just going to endure, you know, like <laughs> hating it all the while. And of course, that's not what it means in this context. Um, but I'm thinking, you know, both of you have. Children. I've never had a child, although I'm close to people who were once children and now adults. And 
So I've seen some of that process and also a little bit through the eyes of their parents and things don't happen right away. You know, lessons aren't learned immediately. Things take time sometimes. Uh, or you've got some big project and um, it doesn't go precisely the way you wanted it to go. And sometimes it's a long time later you find out, oh, you know, somebody took the seed of that idea and they went into this other thing and then they thanked me. I never had anything to do with it really, but, you know, they say they wouldn't have done it except for that seed being planted or, you know, we live in such an intricate, interconnected world. and. Yeah. Uh, to be able to be full on present with whatever it is and mm -hmm. uh, not to be demanding, you know, of a kind of accelerated course mm -hmm. results and, and to understand that things will ripple out and we do the best we can. If we're looking for the source of our integrity, it may not be in the immediate results of something. Mm -hmm. It can be infuriating, of course. People don't always behave. They seldom behave in exactly the way we would like them to behave. Um, you know, we call it patience, we call it equanimity. Um, it's some ability to have a kind of grace with letting go of attachment to immediate results. And going back also, Raghu, to something you said earlier, like I was thinking just before you said Neem Kroli Baba, uh, when we were talking about the power of love and not being weak, yeah. I thought like anyone who that I know that has met Neem Kroli Baba talks about it as the loving opening for them or a reinforcement of such a powerful different sense of love. And uh, nobody seems to refer back to that time as like, it was kind of a waste. It should have been doing a startup or, you know, like <laughs> uh, uh, that didn't help me later, even now. And just then you said being probably Bob, and I said, there it is. Yeah. You know, he's referring back to uh, an encounter that happened a long time ago in chronological time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it's so ever, ever present. Our KD said, told me that, that uh, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji would always cry when he talked about Jesus. Yeah. He would really flip out when he talked about it. Yeah. And Never. that he, he gave his all, you know, and this kind of thing. I really, I really love that the way yeah. I met him. That you know, yeah, too, yeah, he did saying that. Mm. The, um, very marvelous. Yeah, ecumenical. So here's some, here's something else that again, it's on. You know, we talked about patience, and and actually, as you were talking, Sharon, I was thinking, one of the ingredients that uh, would support the concept of being a little bit more patient around so much that goes on in our lives um, is spaciousness and getting a little bit of cutting down on the reactivity and the spaciousness, which, you know, we, you being the meditation teacher and Bob, um, we have to really attend to it. And we say this a lot on these podcasts, the practice it, you know, we say all these things, but there's a way in which there is a necessity, and we can't do should of, we can't do a should of to anybody, but we do. Uh, that kind of practice creates spaciousness, which allows for less reactive uh, stuff and around patience. And here's the other one. I don't know. Uh, I'll just read it. Now that you know that your enemy is merely the tool of his own anger anger being something most of us deal with you can be angry only with the mental addiction that drives him that's a great line you can be angry with his anger with anger itself your anger at anger effectively becomes the energy of tolerance you guys wrote that that's a great uh, paragraph it's good you know now coming back to the word the word is kshanti, and no. Pali, I think it's probably the same kshanti, but they don't like uh, consonant clusters in Pali, I know, but I think kshanti is still the same. I, I, I forget exactly. And what that is, notice, that's the word shanti for peas with a K in front of it. So, which is a sharp sound, okay, kshanti. 
Huh? Hey, it's associated with something sharp and violent, but then Shanti absorbs it. So I never can decide in English if tolerance or patience is a better translation. Mm. And because there's, you know, patience has one negative side when we use that, although it is the word that they use for the virtue, you know, the English Anglo moralists like Chaucer, even back there, they use the word patience for the virtue of non anger. But, um, uh, they don't use tolerance in those in the in that context. But I think modern patients people kind of think, well, I'll get back at my enemy later. <laughs> well, there is a really hostile feeling to him, but I won't do anything right now, and I'll get him later. Yeah. So patience of sort of waiting for your opportunity. But on the other hand, patience of being able to accept uh, an injury without absolutely flipping out, I think is is still maybe the main one in morality. But tolerance is connected to it. But what I wanted to share is. In the wisdom phenomenology, the the thing in both Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism of coming to know your own openness by getting rid of the kind of rigid self-reactions and reactivities, which is the main thrust of Buddhist therapy, you could say. And in that, there is a penultimate state before a, a sort of enlightened realization of something where you tolerate the impossibility of like the, even like being angry with anger is kind yeah. of an impossible idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's that you can't be angry at all. You know, it would seem. But yet, if the forcefulness, the, the seeming forcefulness of anger, pitting it against itself, is something you could only develop tolerance for. And then the tolerance morphs into full understanding. So the mm -hmm. way that coming from being commonsensical and reasonable about uh, about reactivity and not having to react impulsively only from from pure you know un unenlightened instinct, yeah. a gut instinct which is unenlightened. There is there could be a gut instinct of enlightenment, but the way it gets there is you get a tolerance of the un inability to grasp the enormity of what reality is. And then that can that holds you in a place where you can then actually live it and become what you want to become be and and actually laugh when someone's bothering you in a way sort of really yeah. it's a kind of creative dissociativeness that that is a very which you which you could use to connect to others in an open way and it's yeah. used that way the Buddhist psychology is both abhidhamma or abhidharma you know. Theravada Mahayana is so sophisticated in dealing with it. They never ask you to come back from anger to compassion without going to non-anger first, <laughs> or anger with anger. And so tolerance or patience is the middle road before compassion. And all the all the Tibetan things on cultivating compassion always feel that the patience is the first mm. foundation from which can compassion can spring. That it's unrealistic to move to compassion and love from anger without first developing that kind of tolerance and patience. Very oh, good. Great. Really beautifully. And what I love about it is, you know, it underlines, you know, because the, the neuroscientists, you know, sharing our pals, all the neuroscientists are all discovering all these things. They never want to quite acknowledge that all these positive emotions, in a way, come from the wisdoms being critical of the negative ones. You know, so that the root of the love and the compassion actually is being realistic by knowing what your real nature is and not what your habitual instinctual reactivity is. Yeah. And they never want to acknowledge that quite, you know, that the source of compassion is wisdom, because then that shows that the Western science maybe doesn't really have wisdom as a goal. It just wants information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really. really. It's a wisdom as a <laughs> mystical thing or something like that, rather yeah. than something you can systematically achieve. That's, that's, isn't that fun? And by the way, you look so incredibly patient, uh, Raghu. <laughs> I can't believe you've been suffering so much. Look, yeah. Both of you look so cheery today. I think yeah. it must be Ram Dass's influence. Yes. I've been, when I talk to her, I always think of where is Ram Dass now? You know? And what is he doing? And I, I know that you know, maybe he thought he would be with, with the one. And that, that that once he was with the one, he always used to say he wanted to be with the one. He wanted to uh, get the movie of the life. But now being with the one, I think he realizes the one likes to be something like a movie director. 
<laughs> and all of his followers and disciples and Maharaji's followers and disciples, or maybe he was just going to give a little directorial advice to them to prove the quality for him coming back, maybe. Yeah, you know, nation. I, I got to tell you, I got an anecdote, okay? I feel him in your presence and in Sharon's too, and uh, in my good moments in my own, I do. Yeah, let me tell you that after he left and we were in Maui, we were doing, you know, ceremonies and so on and having gatherings and I went over to his house. This is, you know, just what was in early February, so uh, six weeks or five weeks after he left. And I mm -hmm. went into his room and sat and meditated. And uh, I never, ever really see anything. I have no psychic thing, nothing, you know, f for the most part, right? I'm sitting there meditating, and then suddenly, you know, he comes into my space, oh. and 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 I'm and he's standing, and I see him standing next to Maharaji Nimkaran on his and legs, on legs. Hey. Yeah, and I thought, well, you didn't go anywhere, <laughs> and I was like. A little bit surprised, but I had completely that experience that you just described. So it's oh, really, right. really far out, really Wonderful. beautiful. That's so beautiful. And in some ways, it's like it's also tied into what we were talking about. It's like sometimes when we look at anger, for example, which some schools would have you do long before you looked at love, you know, because yeah. mm -hmm. it's it's for many people the more immediate experience. Like you see the you could say benefit of it, which is the energy of it, you know, that you're not passive, mm -hmm. you're not complacent. You also see the tremendous problem with being lost in it, not like feeling it, just feeling it mm -hmm. come and go or feeling it even intensely, but buying into it, you know, like mm -hmm. falling into it and inhabiting it, you know, more thoroughly and being defined by it, which is even oh. worse because then you act. Mm -hmm. You know, you yeah. say something or you do something, so... The, you look at that and you think, oh, you know, how limited was that? Life can be so big. Our sense of life can be so much bigger. And here yeah. we are caught in this tiny little repetitive loop. He said that and he said that and he said that and he said that. <laughs> you know, I have a friend who describes himself, I think, quite accurately as a kind of an obsessive type, you know, and he will hold a grudge and go over it and over it and over it and over it and over it. Or someone's fault, so go over that list again and again and again and again. <laughs> Yeah. He emerged from a period like that, and he said, I think it's actually an AA phrase, he said, uh, I let him live rent-free in my brain for too long. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I and you think that. about how we can spend a day, we can spend a day like that very easily, yeah. or maybe in a more expansive mode that's open to like the miracle of life, you know, that <laughs> is very different. And so it's out of compassion for ourselves in a way that we yeah. we think, okay, what would it be not to just have this habitual relationship to anger, like it's the only source of strength. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You yeah, know, yeah. can I actually explore the domains of love and compassion as a source of strength? And then mm -hmm. and then we're inspired to do that, to, to make mm -hmm. that exploration. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So great. I want to bring something else up uh, that uh, I noted, and it's certainly... Uh, is in reference to, again, what's gone on in Maui, the tremendous suffering and then grief. And this is about grief. It is possible to meta metabolize grief in ways that don't produce hostility, but that nourish our lives, our families, and our communities, and offer lessons for moral and spiritual growth. We see that freedom depends on our ability to open to a bigger context. Yeah. You just talked about that. In the midst of pain, we look toward what is whole and undamaged. It's not that everything becomes all right, but everything is recognized as part of the immense story of life, of nature, of truth. It's certainly not that everything becomes pleasant or inconsequential, but we are no longer defined by trauma because now we have a more powerful sense of wholeness and connection. That's really great. Aaron must have written that. That must be true, Sarah. That's really good. I think I did write that. It's phenomenal. And so apropos, right? 
Beautiful. Absolutely right. His holiness always says that. He always says that when he's really sad about something, you know, getting news from Tibet, they just tortured another hundred people, blah, blah. You know, the, so they send him these messages that keep him under, the, like they held the whole, they have the whole nation of six million people hostage, you know, then to, to him, you know, because they don't want him to embarrass them, the Chinese communists, you know. So he says when he gets really bad, he says it's always compassion that saves him from depression because what happens is he gets to where he observes himself being so miserable from this terrible news that is sent to him, is transmitted to him. And but then he starts thinking when he feel when he notices his terrible and sad feeling, he thinks about other people who all the bad news that they have. He broadens the field of it. Because he realizes, oh God, I feel so bad because I hear this. But then think of all these people over there in Somalia and wherever in history that all across this and all across that, and and then suddenly the more he expands his empathy with other people who have who suffer, what he similar to what he said about the people suffering, then his own suffering it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller in yeah. this sort of ocean of it. So in a way, it's very counterintuitive. You'd think when you're freaked out about some terrible suffering, if you think about more suffering, you just get worse. But actually, by expanding the vision of it, it, it makes your own smaller. And then all as a whole, it forces you kind of to find some seed of joy and happiness within yourself to try to do something for any of those beings. You know, So yeah. then that's where the... The confidence that there is some seed even in you when you're this depressed seems to come from to him by this widening of the thing. Right. But I, I have to confess, of course, I read what you wrote when we were working together. I just didn't realize how absolutely great <laughs> what Raghu just read is. You know, I do have that experience a lot in writing things that even things I wrote and before I thought, oh, that was okay, but okay, I can't go on the next page because I'm trying to get it written. And then actually, I like it later. And I realized I didn't quite know what I was saying at the time. I didn't realize it was so good, you know, because uh -huh. maybe it was I was channeling something I had bumped into from somebody else. So that's really wonderful, Sharon. Yeah, the yeah, no, that's... widening of the scope. Yeah. But, and this relates to something that I'm very focused on right now. In my own Wisdom is Bliss book, I realized I'm rereading it on a on podcast series now. Oh yeah, realized that that it's this funny thing. People think. Well, compassion is when you let yourself go empathetically into being very depressed about other people's suffering so that you can't bear it and you really do it. It's always sort of, that's where it starts. Of course, everyone says it isn't just that, but it starts there. And, um, and then I realized, no, it can't be because why would you have love, which has to be, is the, is the, is the measure before compassion in the, in the immeasurables, right, Sharon? In the mm -hmm. fourth, first there's love and then there's compassion. So you have to have love first, which is the wish for the suffering being or a being to be happy. And wait, in order to have a wish for someone else to be happy, you have to have an idea of what is happiness. Yeah. So you have to find some kind of happiness in yourself. So you have to you're, you know you have to wish for happiness for yourself first, but in the, and then you have to a little bit realize it. Oh, that's when I'm happy, or that's when I was happy. That little thing in the middle of my misery about grandma or this one or that one or the other one, but I had a little bit of like something happy and the oh, and then that's the seed of it. And then oh, and they seem not to have any little seed. I want them to have that. So first step is to find even that happiness is possible, that it's a real thing mm -hmm. in your sense. Yeah. And then you could wish for another person to happy have it sincerely. Otherwise, if you if you if you define yourself as one total bag of misery, how would you realistically want someone else to be happy? Nah. What would it mean? It wouldn't even mean anything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that first, but we never want to say that because we feel that would be counter to the piety of oh, being compassionate is really opening yourself up to misery. But actually, you have to be open to the fact that every mm -hmm. sensitive being has a some kind of health energy, vital energy, life energy. Which is the happiness energy, don't you think? What do you think? 
I do. I think it's it's totally beautiful, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's lovely to think of um, these words again in, in a different way. Because most of the time, if I hear someone else describing compassion, they say suffer with. Yeah, you know, which is the uh, I guess Webster dictionary right. definition of compassion, and uh, it's hard to imagine the association of compassion and joy, but here it is. And Raghu, do you notice how many times Bob uses the word realistic? <laughs> yeah, it fits well, with the real. Yeah, the word suit. real is one of one of yeah. Raghu's favorite words. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm a real third noble truth. <laughs> Nowadays, um, I'm gonna. So we're kind of uh, we. Our time is almost up, but I can't. Oh my goodness! I uh, know we could listen. Uh, we could re- go on. Yeah, Alan Watts said so. Ramdas or Maharaji said so. I know it. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, no Bob, time. you included. I think it's. Well, I'm pretty sure it's you. It's it's a, I guess, a poem. I'm not quite sure what you would call it by, Dharm Dharmarakshita. How do you pronounce okay. that? Yeah, Dharma Rakshita, that's right. Dharma Rakshita. Can I, I just want to read this. This will be our... Okay. And it's so okay. uh, Great incredible. master in the 11th century, yes. Yeah. In spite of my ideals, I'm stingier than a dog with his bone. Although I might be bright, other... Pre- um, although I might be bright, other preoccupation, base of all virtue, still gets blown away by winds of self-preoccupying thoughts. So death-exterminating wisdom, which, uh, Bob, you do explain that that's the real, healthy, real person, please mm-hmm. smash my lethal ego thinker's head. Terminate my secret enemy, my selfish heart. I just mm-hmm. love that. Because is I'm that, supposed is to that be... that quoted in the book? Is that quoted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm oh, reading. I forgot it. Well, it's the book. I'm reading. Oh, yeah, okay. okay. Because I'm supposed to be holy and pure, I'm not supposed to really love this or detest that. So I hide my loves and hates deep within. I see only others as greedy or hating. Then I scold them unfairly and project my faults on them. I haven't diffused my own self-addiction. So how can I complain about their faults? So death exterminating wisdom, please smash my lethal ego thinker's head. Terminate my secret enemy, my selfish heart. That uh, kind of says it all. I that's, mean, that was a really great work that one Lama Rakshita. Oh, that's so Atisha, great. A teacher of Atisha went to mm, Tibet Atisha, in 1042. Yeah. But mm. then he, he had run away to Tibet himself during some sort of invasion where his monastery was burned in Western India. And he somehow got up over the pass into the Ladakh or Tibet. But he didn't speak Tibetan and he wasn't invited by somebody who gave him a translator. So he just worked as a yak herder. And then he wrote oh. that book and uh, sent it back to India or something. And then Atisha lamented that no one had taken advantage of him in Tibet except through that book, Tamarakshita. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. That's oh, an amazing that's, book. That's... I didn't realize I quoted that. It's considered yeah. very advanced in in uh, in the Tibetan thing, you know, because of the sort of fierce language of you know, shatter my yeah. ego, ego yeah, just right. thinker, self-centered thinker's head. You know? <laughs> that's so great. That's well, uh, really. Oh God! Thank you guys for uh, getting this out hey, there again. You know, Love your enemies. You look, right? it's so sweet to meet you both. Yeah, sure. to hang okay. out. I mean, do it again just to hang out. Look incredibly turkey. You must have had a hell of a good birthday party. <laughs> happy birthday, Sharon, really. Uh, and happy birthday to anymore. you, Thank you. Many, many. We almost have the same birthday. But yeah. we yeah. have Obama in between us. <laughs> okay. yeah. Bob is August 3rd. Barack Obama is August 4th, and I'm August 5th. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there, there goes good. August. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you both for being here Thank and, you, and hanging out with me, and uh, just is so so profoundly enjoyable. I can't it's even really tell is. you. I, and I, uh, well, we'll uh, we're, we'll have well. to figure out how to do some more in person as, uh, as, okay. as stuff oh, okay. as, yeah, as time goes on. Yeah, and, and, uh, yeah lots uh, of love. 
Yeah, everybody, uh, by the way, it'll all be connected up in the show notes so you can get the book. It's phenomenal, as you've heard some of the pieces that we've been talking about in it. And then Bob's work and Sharon's work uh, will connect you up that way as well. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you. Go in peace. Thank you. Bye-bye. In peace. Thank you. Have a good day.